A few weeks ago, we started our book, the book we were, our, our sermon series, really, and it's the book of Luke. And um, so we've talked about that a little bit, and we've started into it, and it's been really fun. So we talked about how we're going to be working through a book of the Bible, mostly verse by verse, and uh, that, that, that's a good thing. It's a neat thing, and we'll take different breaks. Maybe we'll do some different things as well. We'll celebrate some holidays in there, but really we'll, we're coming back to this so that at the end of Luke, hopefully if you've been here, you'll have a real sense of this book, that we'll have learned something and we'll have experienced all that God would want to say to us through that. Um, and we titled this, the series Luke for Everyone. And we did that because um, Luke wrote this detailed and vibrant account of the life of Jesus, the gospel of Luke. And he did it so that outsiders would know that they're welcome, that this is news for them as well. It's good news for everyone, not just a few people. It's not just for the Jewish people, but it was good news for everyone. And so that's why Luke is writing, and he does a great job of that. So we're in Luke chapter 5. That's where we've gotten to. And if you, um, you don't like starting where we are today and you want to catch up, you can go back, and we've got sermons online that you can catch up with. But Jesus has been healing people, and he's been setting people free, and he's been calling disciples to follow him. And that's kind of where we are right now is all this is happening. Jesus is well known. He declared from, like from our name, he went into the synagogue and declared jubilee. And he said, I'm fulfilling this. You know, and he read it out of the scroll of Isaiah. And so we, and we've talked about all that before. And last week we talked about, my dad gave that message about the journey of surprise and talking about all the things Jesus was doing. So this week, as we're in Luke chapter 5, verses uh, 27 to 39, we're talking about change. Some people right away are like, change, And other people are like, change, yes! Because there's different kinds of people. Some people really like this, and some people don't. But the reality with change is that there's one... One truth that will probably never change, I think, and that is that everything's going to change. Everything's, nothing will stay the same. And um, a couple examples of that would be this past week or the week before, my brother and his wife moved. And so we've been walking through that with them and the change from moving from one place and packing all your stuff and moving somewhere different and unpacking and getting it ready and trying to fix it all. There's a lot of change with moving. I went on a special low-glycemic diet in the last week. That's been really fun. You know what's on that diet? Nothing good. That's not fun change. Or maybe for you, maybe you tried a new dish at the restaurant you always go to. Do you do that? Some of you are like, what? I never do that. I always get the same thing. But maybe someone did. That would be change. Or I started a new role here. This is new, right? Different from my old job that I was doing. So that's changed. Maybe you started a new class at school and you experience all this new stuff. Or maybe you drove a new way to work or something and you just tried it. Do you ever do that? Lauren does that. Not me. Change is hard though. And Jesus says that change is necessary. In fact, in Luke 5, in our passage, Jesus describes and he demonstrates a kingdom that radically reorients us. He describes and he demonstrates a kingdom that radically reorients us. And so I'd like to read it. It's Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. And uh, you can read along if you have your Bible with you. 
After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them. They always talk in high whiny voices. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours uh, eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. This is God's word. Let's just pray. Jesus, I thank you for, um, for your life. I thank you for Luke's uh, account of it, that he, he went out and purposed to write a detailed and, and thorough account so that we could um, hear these stories and we could study them and we could experience all that you'd have to say to us through it. And Lord, we invite your spirit right now to come and to, to soften our hearts so that we can receive what you want to speak to us today. Lord, that we could be changed, we could be transformed by your word, by your presence, by your power. Thank you, God. Amen. So, my main idea is, my big idea is, that Jesus describes and demonstrates a kingdom that radically reorients us. And we see this when, because the kingdom, the first thing we see is that the kingdom makes clean. Now, for me, I sit at, in our table, I have five kids, and so where I sit at our table, I'm sitting next to Miriam, who's the two-and-a-half-year-old, and so I know this principle well, that sitting next to her, when she eats, she doesn't always use utensils. Sometimes she just wants to use her hands, which is, you know, that's okay with me, less so with Lauren, maybe, but she does that, and so um, very frequently, I'll go out somewhere, and I'll turn, and I'll look in my left side, tends to end up with food stuff on it or just different stuff on it. You kind of always wonder what it is. But I know this well that when you touch someone dirty, you get dirty. I know that's just a general principle. Some of you are looking confused. When you touch someone dirty, you get dirty. When I pick her up and she's all covered in food everywhere, I get dirty too when I've touched her. But the thing that happens with Jesus in this story is that he upends this, it's also a Levitical principle, and he turns it on its head with the new kingdom. So a lot of people talk about how bad they are. They come in and, and even in a church gathering, maybe especially people who 
who didn't grow up in church, tend, this tends to be a feeling more for them. They feel like when they sit down that they're not as good as the other people here. Or they, they struggle with the fact that they don't feel like they deserve it or deserve Jesus to come close to them. And that's a struggle they have. But Luke writes this story, he writes this, this whole story, all of Luke, to give us this message that, that there's good news for everyone. It's not just for a few. It's not just for the person over there who looks like they deserve it more than you or they look like they have it more together than you. It's for everyone. Because Jesus calls Levi, or we know him as Matthew. That's the other name for Levi. So if you've heard Matthew in the Bible or the gospel of Matthew, that's Matthew. He's the disciple. He's Matthew who they think wrote the gospel of Matthew. So some people say, oh, we're not sure, but they think pretty well that's the Matthew. So Matthew, he's one of the 12 disciples. Matthew, he's one of the apostles. And later he becomes an apostle. And this is Matthew or Levi. He's also a tax collector tax collector. Again, you're looking blankly. So a tax collector. Now we had Bill Hogg came and he talked about Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. And so he gave us a little bit of background on tax collectors. And, you know, I can, I'll give you a little bit of information too, but I was thinking about what's the closest thing in our culture to a tax collector. And I was thinking about this. I was like, we don't really have anything like that. Like the CRA people, are they like that? And I was trying to think, but I was like, no, they're and I'm like, I don't really care. You work for CRA. That's okay. But then I thought of it. A tax collector would be a dirty cop on the take. That would be a tax collector. If you had a small business and that cop came in and he extorted money from you or from someone you know, ooh, that's a tax collector. That's what they were like. Because the Romans, they'd assigned districts, so tax districts, and then they would give it to a tax collector. And the tax collector would go out and collect the Romans' taxes. And so just if I went out and tried to collect taxes, people would be like, well, I'm not paying you. I hate Rome. So that tax collector also got the backing of Rome. So they got Roman soldiers to go with them. They had like the muscle to back up their authority. Okay? So they'd go out and they could take as much money or as little money as they wanted. They just had to pay Rome their share. So most tax collectors skimmed off the top. And so if you had the muscle and you have the ability, it's just, they just go out and take as much money as they could get. And then they were rich on the backs of all these poor Jewish people. And they were Jews. Now, the other part of this that was really hard for the Jewish people, why tax collectors were so hated, was because for them it was the Jewish people, Israel against Rome. But it wasn't just Israel against Rome. It was God against Rome, right? That's what they're praying for. That's what they're expecting is God is against Rome. So when the tax collector goes over and joins the Romans, it's the tax collector against God. They are the enemies of God. So this word tax collector became like the same word. You could say, oh, you're a tax collector. You could say, oh, you're a sinner, it's like was the same word. People understood it the same. Your tax collector, your sinner. Yeah, the tax collector, they're sinners. They were unclean, especially because they had so much connection with the Gentile Romans, which made them unclean under the law. So there were all these reasons why tax collectors were hated. So then my question was right away, I look at this story and I think, why a tax collector? Well, that's the story, Jonathan. No, stop. Why a tax collector? 
Just think about it. Just pretend for a minute with me. Just this is like real stretch of imagination. Pretend you're Jesus, okay? You're Jesus. And you are going to come and you're going to assemble an all-star crew to establish the new kingdom, to found the church and keep it going, to lead it when you're gone. And you can pick any 12 people. You are God, so you know everybody. So you got the pick of the litter. You could pick anyone in the whole world, actually. Well, you know, it's limited a little bit. But there's a lot of people. He could pick anyone. Why on earth is he picking tax collectors? Do you know what in his group? There's not one expert of the law. Not what? What? How could this is a real oversight, I think. Not one Pharisee. These Pharisees, I know we have a negative association, but Pharisees, they were, they were on it. They, were fall, they knew the scriptures. We've got to have at least one Pharisee. Shouldn't we have one Pharisee? Like a redeemed Pharisee. Not one Sanhedrin member. The, what about political connections? We're gonna, this is a really big thing we're starting here. Shouldn't we have a Sanhedrin member? I think probably. I would have picked one. Not one synagogue leader? What about people with experience, who've led before, who know how to lead a synagogue? Shouldn't we get a synagogue leader? What about a seminary grad? We need, we need a megachurch pastor for sure. They know how to lead crusades and stuff. Shouldn't we have one of those? Jesus, what are you doing? The reason, I think, Jesus picks a tax collector is so that we would know this is for everyone. This is for everyone. It's for you and me. If it's for tax collectors, it's for you and me. Mired up to our neck in our garbage. For cheats and frauds. For sex addicts and raging alcoholics. For the angry and the selfish and the proud. The hurting and the shamed. Jesus calls your name and says, come, follow me. And he died to set us free. And he says that he proclaims jubilee for every willing heart. Freedom for every willing heart. And the first thing Matthew does when Jesus calls him out of his tax booth and he leaves it behind and he goes after Jesus, the first thing he does is he throws a party for everyone he knows because he wants them all to meet Jesus. Because what just happened to him is so incredible that he wants everyone to experience it. Now, the problem is Matthew only knows other tax collectors. Oh, dear. And a bunch of other disreputable people, religious rejects. That's his party. (gasps) Oh, Jesus, don't go to that party. It's going to be a bad one. Scott Barty says this. He says, being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. In that culture, in that day, when you accepted an invitation to go sit at a table with someone, to go to their home, you were basically saying what Jesus does when he sits with tax collectors and sinners is he confers on them the status of friendship. He says, I will be known as your friends by sitting and eating with you. That's okay with me. I'm surprised in a way. 
you would think Jesus would be like, okay, Levi, now that you're following me, stay away from those people. Un- unfollow, unfriend them all on Facebook. Just come. We got to cut them off, delete their message, their phone numbers from your cell phone. Let's go over here. And we're going to, we're going to cut it off. Levi, you got, I'm going to give you a new name, Matthew. We're going to call you Matthew. We're not even going to call you Levi anymore. Instead, he throws a party with all of his old friends and Jesus seems not only okay with this, but Jesus goes to it. He's there with them. You and I both know that if you touch something dirty, you get dirty. And the Old Testament law proclaimed this a thousand ways. What you touch makes you unclean. Be set apart. Be holy. Don't touch dead things. Don't drink blood. Don't eat pig. Don't eat with Gentiles. Don't associate with sinners. They make you unclean. Don't be unclean. And here's what Jesus does. He comes and he takes that and he drives a Mack truck right through it. And he fulfills it. He doesn't just destroy it. He fulfills it. In the new kingdom, what you touch becomes clean. Jesus goes to the leper. The lepers are unclean. Lepers are supposed to go to the priest, and they're supposed to go through all this ritual to be clean. You don't touch them. You don't go near them. Jesus touches the leper. That was last week. Jesus touches the leper. Jesus now has just called a tax collector to be his follower. Jesus, now he's going to follow you around. You're going to be unclean all the time. Won't you? Jesus goes to a party full of tax collectors and sinners. See the new kingdom? This is what it proclaims. This is what Jesus fulfills. Be holy. Jesus is holy. Who's the holy one? It's Jesus. Jesus is the Holy One. He's the one. And Jesus is bringing jubilee and freedom for us. So one of my questions is, how many sinners do you rub shoulders with outside of church people? Because we're sinners, obviously. How many people do you rub shoulders with? How many people come to your house who are unchurched people? How many people would consider you a friend? It's a hard challenge. It's a hard challenge to me. To all of us, how are we building bridge? How are we making relationship with people? Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Or he might just as easily have said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the proclamation of Jubilee that Jesus fulfills. The kingdom makes clean. And the kingdom is celebration. The kingdom is celebration. Last weekend we had we had a late Easter dinner because we postponed our our big family Easter dinner because my sister was coming from Calgary and with her family. And so we thought, okay, if we wait a weekend, then we can celebrate with her two weekends, whatever it was. And so my mom made turkey last weekend. It just felt like a random day. 
she made this turkey and all these fixings and we had all this food and we had football in the front yard and we had pies and we had ice cream. And then because it was Miles' birthday this week, we also tacked that onto it. And so we celebrated Miles' birthday. We had the balloon. We had the, the presents. We sang happy birthday. We did the little cake. We had, there was a, it was a celebration. It was a party. And at the moment where I think, maybe this is over the top. I realize that I've lost sight of celebration. I've lost sight of what it means or what it looks like. This is what this accusation is really about at the heart of it. When these Pharisees, they question Jesus and they, they really make two statements to Jesus. And the first one is, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And the second is kind of more of a comment, which is, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink, Jesus. This is really about propriety, I think, is what their problem is. Because respectable rabbis and prophets prayed a lot. And they prayed a lot where we could see them praying a lot. Not like up on the mountain or like in some lonely place like Jesus does all the time. No, 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 we want to see you praying a lot. And the other thing they do is they fast a lot. And they fast a lot in such a way that we could tell and notice And know how holy they are. And they seem somber and down in the mouth. Because they're grieving, they're mourning the absence of God. This is what prophets and rabbis should be doing. Jews fasted to call upon God to come in mercy to liberate the nation. Says Tom Chester. To call upon God in mercy to liberate the nation. This was like something that was their role and responsibility. So Jesus, what is he doing? Jesus and his disciples, they're just... they eat and drink a lot. Like, not a little, a lot. Like, we, we could, we, Jesus, we'd be okay if you just did this once a week or something, or like once every two weeks, once a month. You know, go to a little thing, keep it on the lowdown. You just seem to do this all the time. Like, are you doing anything else? Like, the big prayer stuff and the big fasting thing? What's the deal? It's not just who he's doing it with, either. It's the amount of times he's doing it. And Jesus' response is really telling. He says it's like asking people at a wedding to be somber. This is what Jesus, his response to them is. It's like that would be like asking people to be somber at a wedding. And their weddings weren't even like our weddings. Their weddings were like multi-day events. And you got all this food and you got garment, like clothing being given out. And there's all this. It's like a full-on festival celebration party. Like it's a big commitment to go to the wedding. Like a big deal, a big celebration. There's lots of wine. I mean, that's Jesus' first miracle is he's at the wedding and they run out of wine and Jesus makes more. There is a time, Jesus would say, for somber and a time for celebration. Now, I've even sat with people at a wedding and, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they didn't like drinking, they didn't like dancing, and that was happening. They had really sour faces. And you know what's funny? It just seems so out of place at a wedding for people to be all sour faced. You're like, no, no, don't do that. That's not, that doesn't look right. You know what? You might not even like, just why it looks so sour? It's just not, it doesn't fit at the wedding. And that's what Jesus says. God has come among you. He's incarnate. God with us. Jesus was there. The bridegroom has come. So we're not going to be dour and sour. We're going to be celebrating. 
that the Messiah you've been fasting for, you've been hoping for, is now among you. Jesus brought Jubilee. What better reason to celebrate? Um, In the book Celebration of Discipline, which is a great book, by the way, Richard Foster says, when the poor receive the good news, when the captives are released, when the blind receive their sight, when the oppressed are liberated, who can withhold the shout of Jubilee? When these things are happening, who can not celebrate? It's exciting when people are set free. When people get healed, it's exciting. You want to celebrate. You want to join in. Celebration rises from gratitude and appreciation for God's gracious provision. Gratitude and appreciation rise from God's gracious provision. You know what? This week on Thursday morning... We blew a gasket, Lauren and I. That's what it looks like. It could be a little louder than that. And the gasket we blew had to do with finances. We were talking about our finances. And if you live in the lower mainland, you also will have had that discussion, maybe with your significant other at some point, <laughs> that uh, it's hard. Finances are hard. And so we, on this particular Thursday morning, we were done with finances. And we said, God, we don't know how to do this. We can't. I don't know how to make this all work. So we bring it to you. And so we stood there after our mental breakdown and we prayed, which is a good thing to do right after you have your breakdown. We prayed and we just said, Jesus, I don't know how this can be fixed. So I don't know how to do. I don't know how to make all this work. I'm going to give it to you. And so when I did that, at least, I felt a lot better. And I walked. I had a great day, and I was like, oh, this is a good day. At 9 o'clock that evening, we got a surprise email that was an e-transfer where someone was giving us a sizable and generous gift. And at 9.05, after I got the email, Lauren and I wept, and we worshiped. And we said, whoa, that doesn't always happen quite that dramatically in one day where God answers our prayer and meets our need. And it was powerful. Foster says, no one would dare celebrate the Jubilee unless they had a deep trust in God's ability to provide. The Jubilee, we've talked about it, where slaves are set free and where you don't harvest your field and where you release people of their debts. You don't do any of that if you don't trust God's provision because that's the whole system. It relies on God's provision. It's the same thing with manna in the desert. You don't take one day's worth if you don't trust God's provision. You take lots because you're worried about tomorrow. You're not sure how it's going to go. But when you trust his provision, you enter in to Jubilee and you celebrate it. God, you are our provider. You're the one who does that. And Jesus saved us and he set us free. And he invites us into this journey into freedom with him. That is what we're celebrating. Now, I think we're supposed to practice celebration. Augustine says the Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. From head to foot. That's not the usual description of Christians most people have. They're like, from head to foot? Like a dancing Christian or something? But you know what? If we were going to learn how to celebrate, I would start with kids. Because kids know how to celebrate. Usually kids celebrate with Noise. Lots of noise. 
And I have five kids. I know this. Some of you aren't sure. I can tell you it's true. When they're celebrating, wow, it gets really, really loud. My favorite celebrator in our family, though, the one I learned the most from, is Gabriel. He's seven. He's my favorite celebrator in our family. I just watch him for, for keys on how to celebrate. He has this explosive laugh. And he'll just burst out in this laughter when he's really overjoyed with something. And you can hear it in the other room or upstairs even. You hear him and suddenly you just hear that explosive laugh and I just start laughing myself. It's just great. Or another thing Gabriel likes to do is he does this spontaneous kind of random applause. He'll just, when he's something he just wants to say, he just starts clapping. He's just like, yes. We had a Sunday school teacher at Maple Ridge Community Church who came up to us and they said, I was telling a Bible story in kids church and we got to this really amazing part and God came through and Gabe just started us in applause and then she said and then I started applauding because that's right what God did is amazing I want to I want to applaud that and that's what he's like he just does this thing and we could learn from that or another thing our family does that tends to go round and around because the kids are part of it is three cheers we do three cheers. So at the dinner table, it'll be like, oh, this is a great meal. Okay, three cheers for mommy. Okay, hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray. And I would stop there. I'd be like, great. Thanks, Lauren. Great meal. And then the kids are like, who set the table? Maddie, three cheers for Maddie. Hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray. Okay. What did you? Gabe's here. Hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip. And they just start going around the table. And it wouldn't stop, actually. They just would keep finding things to hip, hip, hooray about. Because that's what they're like. They love to celebrate. It's in their heart. And I think we lose that as we get older. We start to, you know, we have all of our stuff. So the, the thing is, I think it's actually like a spiritual discipline, just as much as prayer, just as much as some of these other areas that we would learn to celebrate. We would engage in celebration. The kingdom makes clean. The kingdom is celebration. And the kingdom is change. The kingdom is change. I was helping my mom get on the city last week. So the city is our social network thing that we're trying to get people joined into. And it's got all these different elements to it. And so my mom and dad, they're the prayer leaders, prayer ministry leaders. So she was trying to post on the city. So she kept calling and trying to get help. And people would say, just press the post button. It's right there. And she kept saying, I can't find it. I can't find it. And so I went to their house. and I was like, I'll help you find it, mom. So I sat down being the tech guru, genius. And I sat down and it wasn't there. (sighs) Go figure. Turned out that their internet browser was quite old and it wasn't updating anymore. And so it just didn't connect properly to the page. So once we got them a different browser, oh, there it was. It wasn't her fault. It was the computer's fault. It's gone again. Okay. We'll work on that. Shh. Mom, you're ruining my illustration. This turned into a really long conversation between my parents and I about technology, how fast it changes, about all these different things, about old programs and old computers and new programs and all how that all works together. My dad's computer was 12 years old. So that's kind of old. Some of you are like, my computer's older than that. That's an old computer. And so I think if Jesus were telling the parable that he just told today, he might say something like, it's like putting new programs into old computers. It's going to make your computer act weird. It's going to blow it apart. It's going to make it slow. It doesn't work. You can't put these two things together for it to work well. 
I understand Jesus' examples about patches and about wine. The patches thing, you know, makes sense to me. I grew up tearing holes in my knees. And actually, when I was a kid, my mom sewed patches on my knees. And I hated it, but she was like, I just bought these new jeans. You just played soccer and you ripped holes in the jeans. So I'd get these patches on my knees and I'd go, you know. So I I understand patches. And I understand if you use a different color of jean, it starts to look weird. If you try to match it, it's still, you know, it's it's not the same. Unless it's from the same kind of jean. Exactly. I understand on some level that new and old don't go together. But the second example stopped me, and I don't know if you caught it or not, but this is what it says. Jesus says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now, I understood this right up to the last line. I get you don't put new wine in old wine skins. Okay, you have old wine and old wine skins, new wine and new wine skins. But then that, that, there's the line about the old is good and no one after drinking old wine desires new. And I understood this because I've had port. I'll confess to you. I've had port and I liked it. And then I had 50-year-old port. I was like, 50-year-old port's way better. The old is way better. So then I'm reading this and I'm thinking... Old wine is supposed to be way better. If you got the ancient vintage that was in the wine cellar forever, you would say, oh, this is worth thousands of dollars. But the wine we just made this year, it's worth $12 in the liquor store, whatever. So I'm, I'm questioned. I don't understand. What is Jesus saying? This is what Jesus is saying. This is about comfort. This is about being comfortable. I like what I know. Changing things is hard. When I go to a restaurant, I order the same meal. Once I find the good one, that's the one I order. And I look through the menu like I'm going to order something else. But I really, I won't. Because I don't want to be disappointed. I don't, I'm afraid if I get a different meal, it's going to change things. And I might not like it, and it might not fill me up, and I just have all these questions. So I'm going to go with Old Faithful, the meal I know. What we have is good enough. This is what some other translations do for that one line. And NIV says, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Or the NASV says it this way, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. And that sentence, I was like, oh, I think that's exactly what it's about. Jesus is saying, if you're comfortable with what's good enough, you're going to miss what's best. You're going to miss it. It won't be attached. It can't fit inside. It can't be matched up with it. It won't be familiar or comfortable. In fact, Jesus says it's more like being born again. This new kingdom is more like being born again than it is about going to a course and learning something new. Jesus says it's not going to work like that. You'll have to be actually like born again is what it's more like. That's how different it is. Tim Chester says, comparing these two things, the new way is gracious rather than religious, inclusive rather than exclusive, welcoming rather than unwelcoming. It's characterized by feasting rather than fasting, rejoicing rather than grumbling. It recognizes its need and finds hope in the Savior rather than feeling self-righteous. 
this new kingdom is so shocking that it's going to go looking for, for tax collectors and sinners. This kingdom is so upside down that prostitutes will get in before religious people. That's what Jesus says to the religious people. Because you know who welcomes the new order? You know who welcomes new things? Is the people who are most outside. The newest people. Those are the people who are like, okay, well, I don't have that much to lose. Okay, yeah, I mean, everything's bad anyway. Let's go for it. And that's why the people who are most desperate embrace the good news fastest. They're quickest to say, I'm in need, and I need that. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. And the people who are pretty sure they're doing a good job, and they got this all nailed down, and I think I only sinned once this week, so I'm doing pretty good. Those people, Jesus says, it's going to be harder for you to catch this whole new kingdom thing that everyone needs the Savior. So Jesus describes and demonstrates a kingdom that radically reorients us. Jesus describes and demonstrates a kingdom that radically reorients us. The kingdom makes clean. It's not about who you hang out with or where you are or what you touch that's going to make you unclean. In fact, this new kingdom, as you're a part of it, means that where you go and what you touch will become clean because of the presence of God, because of the power of Jesus to transform and make new. Secondly, the kingdom is celebration. Christians need to learn the discipline of celebration. They need to learn how to laugh and how to shout and how to dance and how to sing and how to make a lot of noise. And to have embraced the joy of Jubilee so much so that they can't help but celebrate it. And thirdly, the kingdom is change. It's going to be different. If you've been a part of things for a long time, you might find it different than what you're used to. It will mean laying down our preconceptions of what Jesus is doing or what, what all this is about as we see and experience him bringing freedom to a lost world. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you for your kingdom that you came and you said you were establishing a new kingdom. You were changing the order of things. And Jesus, that when you did that, you opened the door to everyone, like the, the stories of the feast where you, you said the, the, the banquet owner, the house owner said, I want, I want this house to be full. And so the servants went out and they brought in and they brought in and they brought in whoever would come. You welcome everyone, every willing heart, Lord. You say, I, I would respond to that. And so, Jesus, we come and we submit ourselves humbly before you and we say, God, that we need you. We need to be transformed so that we can be people who bring um, who you are to a lost world. We're not afraid of the world, but that the world trembles as we go into those dark places with your light. Jesus, that we would be a people of celebration. We would know how to laugh and how to have parties that are super fun. That when people come, they say, wow, Christians know how to celebrate because we have a reason to celebrate. And Jesus, we thank you too that um, as you bring change in our lives, Lord, that you are gentle with us because so many of us have a hard time with change. And so we thank you for how gently you walk us through the, the ways you're leading us, the different things you're doing in our lives. And we love you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.